We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Welcome to the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. This is Mean Lean from ArsenalVision.co.uk. Arsenal nil, Chelsea nil at the Emirates. Why I didn't put a bit on it, I'll never know. Well, I do know. I'm lazy. But I had a feeling that the game would play out exactly how it did. Um, always going to be difficult to create chances against a team that don't want to come out. No, not, not only a team that want to come out, a team with a lot of money, with a lot of quality players who are coached continuously to not concede goals in those kind of games. I mentioned in my match preview that I thought the game came a few weeks too late. Um, a few weeks ago, if you remember, we beat Liverpool 4-1. We played some wonderful football that day. Um, since since then, we've dropped off a little bit in our performance. Burnley away, we weren't quite as, as fluid going forward and obviously the Reading game in the Cup. So I wasn't too convinced that we'll be able to cut through them as often as we would have liked to have won the game. Chelsea had no reason to come out too much. Um, they created some decent chances themselves on the break. But, you know, they didn't have Costa. Started Drogba on the bench. They came not to concede. And that's what happened. I'm not too disappointed. I'm disappointed because I wanted Wenger to beat Mourinho. It's the only reason I was disappointed, really, because even if we won the game, we weren't going to win the league. And it looks at this point that we're in the top four, quite possibly the top three. So, I don't think the result would have made much of a difference, really. What is quite pleasing, though, going into the, the next season, is that, you know, we can go toe-to-toe with anyone in this league now. And I think we've we've proved it at Old Trafford in the FA Cup, at Man City in the league, and at the game yesterday against Chelsea. 
who are going to be champions. Absolutely nothing to be fearful of going forward. We're going to try and strengthen the squad, I'm sure. We won't lose any of our key, key players. So it's hard to be too upset about about the result in the end. Anywho, I'm going to hand you over to the guys, talk about the game in more detail. And um, I will be back for the next fixture, which I can't remember the top of my head, which is terrible. Um, but yeah, back for that game. Team of expensively assembled superstars fails to score at the Emirates, but Chelsea didn't either in a nil-nil draw in the North London derby. And then after the game, in other news, no-nothing pundit goes after Arsenal players. Nothing new. Not sure what the qualifications are besides the 228 goals he scored for Arsenal. This is the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. My name is Elliot Smith. You can follow me or block me or abuse me on Twitter or all three. Can't do two of those three same time. Anyway, at Yankee Gunner. And as ever, I am joined by two far more erudite, sophisticated, and well-informed individuals who will give you all of the lowdown on what was a newsworthy day in football, if not a goal-worthy day at the Emirates. The first of those gentlemen, and I use the term in the loosest possible sense, is Paul. You can follow him on Twitter at Poznan in my pants. That's where I keep him. Paul, welcome. Uh, well, yeah, w- welcome to you too. That was one hell of an intro. I'm looking forward to this. This should be spicy. It's going to be spicy, like like the red cap rooster sriracha sauce spicy. Um, if you don't know, go to your local Tesco's or Cub Foods or, or Whole Foods or wherever you shop, you'll find it. Anyway, uh, I'm also joined by a weary, but I am sure ready and eager as ever to give you comprehensive answers to the questions I will ask. His name is James. You can follow him at GoonerFanatic49 on Twitter. James, welcome. Evening, Elliot. I already have little ideas what's going on. But good I'm, afternoon, good evening, and good night. I'm looking forward to it. You betcha. Let's dive in. It was a drab nil-nil, but there's a lot to talk about. We'll start, as we often do, at the beginning of the match. Um, it's one of those sort of vanguard ideas we've come up with on this podcast. I'm sure others will emulate it. But uh, we'll start with the lineups. We stayed unchanged from what we've been doing of late with Ramsey on the wing. I'll start with you, James. Any issue with the lineup? I mean, I, I guess the surprise is that Murtisacker was fit to play. Gabriel didn't even feature on the bench. But what do you think of the lineup, and would you have done anything different? Um, I think the lineup was pretty much as expected. Um, the big surprise, if you want to call it that, was Bellerin coming in for Debussy. Mm-hmm. Um, following Debussy's start against Reading, I thought that was Wenger sort of preparing him for this upcoming game maybe using that experience and matching him up against Hazard. Um, in hindsight, um, which we fortunately have the benefit of now, uh, Bellerin seems to be a fantastic choice, and he really acquitted himself quite excellently on the, on the day. Um, obviously adding the added uh, attacking um, aspects to his game that he possesses, but, um, well, not that that was uh, unfortunately able to be displayed so much given Chelsea's uh, defensive um, leading within within the fixture itself, but um, in addition, I thought he actually played extremely well from a defensive side of things against the prospective player of the year, um, which was perhaps my biggest concern going into the game. Um, and he, you know, he displayed what was a, you know, could have been considered a particular a well experienced and um, a mature performance for someone of um, um, of his age. 
in the forward department, I think, you know, of course, there's the debate surrounding Ramsey. He's not a natural right winger as such, but it's the lineup that we've seen over the last four games or so. And it's Arsene's way of trying to get the best players all into the same 11. So I think it made sense. I'm not sure if a pacey winger, as we saw when that were when Walcott came on and when Danny was out wide briefly, would really have been able to add all that much um, given the type of defensive um, style or display that we saw from Chelsea. I don't know if you're going for additional sexiness, James. You're sexy enough already, so if you've got the microphone closer to your mouth than usual, it's certainly not necessary. Um, but I, I will say that I agree with what you're saying. Um, I think there is maybe a situation happening with uh, the Ramsey on the wing deployment that we saw a little bit early in the season with trying to get Jack Wilshire and Ramsey and Ozil on the same side. And it's it's sort of a question now um, as to whether we could possibly use a, a, re a real winger, someone who stays wide, especially with Sanchez cutting inside. And we've talked about this in previous pods. But, Paul, quickly, I think James hit on the key issues surrounding our lineup. What do you think of Chelsea? They went strikerless. They left Drogba on the bench. They sort of you know, used some of their, their pace with Hazard and William, maybe expecting to be counterattacking a little bit more, but also uh, Ramirez, who can run. Were you surprised that they didn't go for a, for a target man, or uh, was that something that you were kind of expecting from them? I wasn't expecting it, but uh, obviously they had issues in the striker department, and Drogba's 37 now, mm -hmm. so that was going to be a big ask for for 90 minutes, so... You know, using the old hindsight, uh, it's not surprising. What I thought was really interesting was the Terry interview after the match where he criticized Chelsea, if anything, for having been too attacking. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I mean, let's deal with that, though. So let's jump into it. I mean, were you surprised that the first half was as open as it was? I, I thought... You know, that this was an interesting match because Mourinho had been excessively criticized for boring, dull, defensive football after the victory over United. And they didn't need to win today, and they knew it. And they could probably suffer a loss today and still be just fine. So it, it, do you think maybe that there was an intention, at least in the first half, where Mourinho said, hell, you know what, go out, attack a little bit, let's see what happens, we don't need this game, and I can shed some of the criticism? Or do you think that it was just the energy of the occasion and maybe the players themselves responding to some of the criticism after the United match? Because it was definitely a very open first half, um, and I don't think anyone was expecting anything like that. Well, usually I'd either bullshit here or or demur or say I don't really know. or But, I mean, John... Terry specifically addressed that. He said the mm -hmm. plan was to come out with, uh, what was his, his line, two banks, mm -hmm. basically two banks of four. And his major assessment of the match was they were too open in the first half. That was not what they planned. Mm -hmm. So pretty clear what their marching orders were. Well, it certainly um, showed in the second half, right? Because the second half, they put an end to any, any suggestion that they were going to be an attacking force in the match. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the, the, uh, the, the first chance, well, maybe it wasn't the first chance, but the, the, the kind of standout chance with Oscar getting wiped out, which I'm sure we will talk about. Mm -hmm. You know, in a way, I probably would have had a different answer without John Terry because that was such a carbon copy of what they did the last time we played them with the, uh, you know, Fabregas getting the ball in space, chipping or uh, maybe not even chipping, lobbing it over Kishelny's head for 
Costa. You know, this all almost seemed to be the same playbook, but they weren't expecting to have that kind of space in the first half and that kind of possession. Yeah, I mean, the, the first half, honestly, I, I'm not going to, if it's all right with you guys, go into too many details of the match itself. I want to talk about some of the larger themes and issues surrounding it because I think they're more interesting than the match itself. But there are certainly a couple things we have to get to. And James, I'll go to you for the first, the penalty incidents, which obviously were sort of the, the key moments of the game. The first one is uh, Ospina clearing out Oscar. Um you know, there was a discussion. I think Arsene Wenger after the match maybe have been the one who said, look, the referee played on and then the ball was cleared off the line by Bellerin, so he can't then pull back for a penalty. Do you buy that argument? I mean, that's something I hadn't really considered. I mean, if he's letting the ball head towards the net, he's playing on, or can he pull back for a penalty there? Surely that that is a penalty if he's not playing on. I don't know if he's playing on, is he then not through virtue playing advantage, whereby if it doesn't lead to, I guess he's then taken the he's taken the chance and and Bellerin's headed it clear. But do you really give advantage for a penalty incident? I'm not well, sure. Well, they do. I mean, I do know. Like for example, if if I dribble into the box and I get clear, and then I slide it across the box for a teammate who's open, wide open in front of goal, and I get cleaned out, if the referee lets that player take the shot and he misses, I don't believe he can then pull back for a penalty. Right, because he's played advantage. So, I mean, I think you can make an argument that with the ball heading towards the goal, the referee's playing advantage. But I, I think it's a specious argument. I, ultimately, I think we probably all believe that's a nailed-on penalty, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I completely understand your point. I mean, the problem is in, in this situation, Oscar's ability to um, to finish off the opportunity is, is somewhat impacted by Ospina charging in in the way that he is. So he's the player that's directly impacted by the involvement of Ospina in, in that coming together. Mm-hmm. Whereas if Oscar was playing the ball across the face of goal, was then wiped out and then, you know, someone else misses the opportunity, those are almost two separate incidents. So I I think, you know, with the benefit of I, I don't even think you need a video replay for this one, but I, I was honestly quite surprised at the time that a penalty wasn't being wasn't given because I think if Oscar, for example, had tried to just put to push the ball to the side, even we often see a player who effectively loses um, control of the ball or possession of the ball but knocks it away from the goalie and then is wiped out. Um, often a penalty is then given. But it seems strange that in this situation where he was more in control of the ball, albeit um, an effort on goal, we, um, we, we got away with, with just a corner. Um, mm-hmm. But fair play to Bellerin for hitting what I thought was going to be... He cut it very fine. Um, and then flew into the back of the net into the camera, which is quite amusing. Yeah, I mean, I think, I, I wouldn't say it was a, a challenging clearance, but I do think lost in the debate over the penalty is the quality and the, the awareness of Bellerin to hustle back and, and clear that ball off the line. Um, the other obvious incident, Paul, was the Cesc Fabregas dive, and we'll, we'll talk about the handball as well, but the the Fabregas dive, I think, is one of these cases where people conflate two issues, right? I mean, it can be not a dive and also not a penalty. Um, And I don't know why people have difficulty sort of separating the two. I think that Cazorla does pull his leg back. Um, I think that there is the kind of contact that is sort of incidental and happening anywhere on the pitch 
I don't know that that is a foul, uh, just sort of incidental coming together, but I, I certainly don't think that it was a yellow card warranted dive. Um, where do you come down on this? I mean, if a player feels contact in the box and they go to ground, is that their right, or is that a situation where Fabregas has to stay on his feet and continue to try to stay up and, and sort of let the referee decide for himself? Uh, I'm okay with what Fabregas did. I think um, in, in no, you know, in cricket, you have the concept of an appeal to the refer to the uh, umpire, mm-hmm. and I think somebody going down on a challenge, as long as it's not too th- theatrical and it's not completely specious and fabricate, uh, fabricated, is the guy saying, "Listen, I'm fouled, and I'm I'm calling it." You know, make a decision, ref. Um, so had it been, you know, had both of those penalties been Arsenal players that the, uh, the, the judgment was coming against, I did think we got screwed twice. I have to say, um, I do think Michael Oliver will make a case on the first one. Uh, there is a logic to, you don't get the shot on goal, which Oscar got off cleanly and the penalty callback, but uh, and I guess my other question, so that if I'm Michael Oliver, that's what I'm going to say, but I still think it was a penalty. Was it offside? Um, I've, I've watched it a bunch of different times. You know, if I'm going to uh, plea that Arsenal got screwed over, I'm going to say Oscar was offside. And mm-hmm. I don't know what the, the verdict, you know, that, that rules out the whole movement at that point and get, of course, you know, yeah. It, if I'm lawyer, that's that's what I'm lawyering for. That's my Johnny Cochran position. By the way, kudos to to the to the Chelsea medical staff for doing their utmost to ensure that the safety of Oscar was paramount. Wow. Consideration, you know? Yeah. <laughs> wow. You know. Now, now, of course, I got to be careful because that I may be living in the world's smallest glass house there, um, because yeah. Cochran may have been concussed as well and and sent back out to continue playing. So. You know, that, that's certainly a question. There was some discussion that he was ill at halftime, but, you know, it's certainly possible that he suffered the same fate as Oscar, which is sort of ironic. Um, so the, the the one other really controversial incident then would be the, the handball debate. Um, it was Cahill, who always gets away with murder and seems to always get away with murder against us. James, it, it strikes me as impossible to suggest he was intending to handle the ball. Is the fact that his arm is up and away from his body in that position, is he attempting to make himself bigger, or is that just naturally the arm movement you make when sliding in to block a shot? I think it's probably a fairly natural movement, but that doesn't take away from the fact that his arm is away from his body and the ball is heading directly on target, and thus I think a penalty has to be given. Um, I mean, I think, you know, especially in the context of discussing the other two penalties, I don't think we can feel too hard done by. Um, if you were ranking those penalty shouts in terms of strongest to weakest, what would be your strongest, middle, and weakest penalty shout of those good three question. Incidents? Oh, that is an interesting question. Um, I'd say the third would probably be the uh, <laughs> the Oscar penalty, mm-hmm. purely because there is... There is some arguments quick, made quick from follow-up question. side of things. Can headbutting Oscar in the face really be a penalty, though, or is it just a <laughs> or is it just a public service? 
But okay, I agree. That's the strongest. It's definitely a public service. Okay, so so what's your number two and what's your number three? Which which is the stronger penalty shout? The Fabregas incident or the the Cahill handle? Well, with my completely neutral glasses um, on, I think the uh, the second one was the the Fabregas incident. Mm-hmm. Um, well, the thing with the Fabregas one is that there was clearly a touch, and we see it in we see it in slow motion. Um, but as soon as there's that that slight touch from Cazorla, he immediately pulls his legs away. And I did get the sense that Fabregas, although you know he he probably was naturally going down anyway, certainly exaggerated the movement. So I wonder how about how much that. I, I, it was very difficult from a viewer's point of view to know how heavily Cazorla really impeded upon Fabregas with that touch and how much um, that movement was necessarily impacted upon. Yeah. But again, you know, I'm I'm watching a snake or a rat falling on the floor, and I I, I can but um, be be opinionated from what one side of things. I mean, I think the handball is 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 as clear as a clear day of penalty. It's not even a cross coming in. It's a it's a shot very directly headed on goal with the, with his arm outstretched. If you're going to lunge in like that um, to make a block, you are um, you're running the the possibility of of your arm getting in the way and and thus conceding a penalty. I fear. Um, so you brought him up. So let's talk about him. Um, Cesc Fabregas first game back at the Emirates playing for Chelsea. Paul. Was it actually less of an event than you expected? To me, apart from people on Twitter just, you know, turning themselves inside out and into knots and basically doing what Twitter does to itself every day, I didn't actually find it to be as big of a focal point as you might have expected. And part of that is because I don't think Fabregas was particularly effective outside of, you know, the one dive incident, which could have been a penalty, and the ball over the top to Oscar, which could have been a penalty or a goal. But outside of those two incidents, I didn't think he was that effective. Do you think it was his performance or lack thereof that made it a non-incident? Or do you think it's just the reality that no matter how much the football supporter likes to pretend that we have long memories, we just we're, we live so in the moment now that, that we've moved on and we're more concerned with the players who still are at Arsenal? Uh, I was strangely unmoved by it, which I never would have believed about it, uh, you know, at the start of the season or during the summer when all the talk of would he, wouldn't he, you know. uh, I wrote various tweets during the summer about how stomach churning it would be. And my stomach didn't churn really at all. I'm so used to seeing him wearing blue now, plodding around. You think it's just because of when this game came in the season? And obviously if this was September, it'd be a very different story. I think it'd be hugely different. Mm-hmm. I think we've gotten used to the realities. I think everybody can see that Sesk had a big contribution to them, but I'm not sure they now see him with that halo from a footballing standpoint. You know, he does great things, but he also reminds you of how often you were frustrated with him in the team, especially towards the end. You know, he didn't, he wasn't enough to change our fortunes and the, the trajectory of our team. Well, he gives you uh, about half a season when he's in the Premier League, and, and we're seeing that again. I mean, he really hasn't shown S-H-O-N-E, not S-H-O-W-N, uh, yeah. for you homophone fans out there. Um, he hasn't <laughs> and, really shown for, it, for Chelsea in the second half. I think that's right, and if you take away the goal, which they didn't get anyway, mm-hmm. uh, you could have played any midfielder there. He's not fast. He's... Yeah, I mean, he is a great talent and a great player. And were he playing for us, I'm sure I'd make the case. But 
uh, we can live without him. Uh, uh, you know, for all the talk about Ozil being the one you have to watch in a game to see what he's really doing, um, he didn't. Ozil didn't have the big moment today, but I thought his overall play was sensational. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's he's just what makes things work. And Fabregas wasn't. Now they were had a different game plan today, but he, there was nothing particularly exciting about Fabregas beyond his his nine iron over the top to Oscar. Yeah. Um, James, I'll, I'll let you talk about it because obviously it's an emotional topic. Was this difficult for you? Were you surprised by how little you, you were moved by it or were you uh, wrapping yourself in old Fabregas shirts and crying in your Xanax bottle? Um, I think I'm very much on the same page as Paul and yourself in that I think enough time has gone by with us having seen him in in the Chelsea blue for it to not be as much of an event as it otherwise would have been. Um, that being said, I've also I've always since his departure to Barcelona, I've I've developed quite a disdain towards him. Mm. I haven't really been in the camp of oh, I you know I still loving Cesc and, and wanting him to come back. So I think that's probably helped my cause slightly in that. Um, my, my the the hatred has been there for, for 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 quite a significant period of time now, and I haven't really given him the the remedy or the um, the justifications that you know, I, which I can complete, which I can understand from from large sections of the fan base um, as to why you know perhaps Arsenal should have brought him back. So I think for me, it's it, it's been a thing of thing of the past for a while, and especially just in particular. That this that the home game came as the, as the second uh, meeting between the two sides um, aided aided to sort of the the lack of severity with which Arsenal fans um, sort of addressed the the kind of the booing and the mm-hmm. um, and their sentiments towards Fabregas um, and I think now you know with enough time you could even you could see uh, as he left. Um, on, in the 89th minute, that there was there was a mixture of applause from some fans who were willing to remember um, all that he brought to the club, and of course as a previous captain, and and there was still of course the the booing that we that we heard throughout the game, and um, there was still some of that to be heard as as he departed. So it, it it's clearly something that still splits the fans, and I think because of that split, it also wasn't something as intense as. Perhaps if whenever we see a Van Persie or a Nazri return to the stadium, where we all seem to be on on the exact same page with with regards to how we feel about them, I think I think how you feel about Cesc today, in large part, boils down to your interpretation of two events. Event number one is how he left the club. If you believe that he went on strike, if you believe that he was in the wrong for leaving for Barca, if you believe that he screwed over the club in so doing, and if you believe that. He angled to go to Chelsea, and and it wasn't in fact Arson passing on him in the, this summer. Then I think for all those reasons, you're going to really hate Cesc Fabregas and see him as a snake. If you see that Arson Wenger asked him for one more season at Arsenal, which he gave, and then he felt he was ready to leave to return home to the club that's his boyhood club. If you believe he wanted to come back to Arsenal this past summer, and and Arson Wenger did in fact pass on him and he had to reluctantly go to Chelsea, then you're going to be more inclined to remember him as, as, as an Arsenal hero. And, you know, without going into which we believe, I think that's sort of why you have the split. Some people have one view of, of how those events unfolded, and some people have another view. But let, let's stay a little more topical, or at least current, in terms of what happened today on the pitch. The first half was pretty open, but 
we just never seemed to fashion the chances that maybe we could have. And one of the reasons for that was I think Alexis Sanchez was the best and worst version of himself today. At one point I tweeted, I effing love Alexis Sanchez because he was just working himself to death, you know, chasing back, closing down. I think at one point he closed down, was it was it Courtois even, and, and nearly got the ball off him and created an opportunity. He just has that tirelessness, but his shooting was off. There was a counterattack opportunity where he picked out no one in particular. Paul, I mean, is, is Alexis Sanchez one of these players that you really just have to get used to the idea that he's this all-action, rock-and-roll type of player who for every one thing he does right, he's going to do four or five things that don't come off because he's just sort of a frenetic, energetic player, but maybe not a precise operator in the way like a Mesodozal is? So I think there's a lot of that to it. I think today was a little different. Uh, when I think back to the last game and the only game he's faced Chelsea for Arsenal in, uh, you know, he was up against Ivanovic, who's an absolute bastard and frustrated the hell out of him, kicked him all game long. So that's what he was expecting this time around, and that's what he got. And you contrast to the, you know, the other battle we would have all anticipated would have been the diametrically opposed battle, which is what's going on with Hazard and Bellerin. And, you know, those were two battles going on in which the fullbacks, amazingly, even ours, got the better of the guy they were playing against and frustrated the crap out of them. Mm-hmm. And I think part, part of what went on with, with Sanchez was after getting kicked for the first 15, 20 minutes, he kind of went walk about, tried to make too much happen when he got the ball. You know, uh, I think he he it's kind of a game and a half's worth of having Ivanovic just kicking the shit out of you. I fully understand why Luis Suarez bit the shit out of Ivanovic. I'd bite him. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's just um, I mean, he's brilliant. You Do you know, want to go on record right now saying Branislav Ivanovic is delicious? Uh, <laughs> well, I don't know, because he seemed to spit it out afterwards, so it obviously didn't taste as it good as he expected. As he thought, yeah. So, you know, I kind of give... This is one game where I have immense sympathy for Sanchez, because, you know, he's up against that guy, and in a way it, it impacted our whole game, because you're not going to get the same attacking thrust from the right wing because we've got Ramsey you got Ivanovic and the center backs neutralizing Sanchez so you can kind of see how we'd have a pretty frustrating game as a team and have some of our attacking blunted what we might have expected was Bellerin to do just as good a job blunting Hazard uh, in the diametrically opposed area of the pitch yeah and and, I mean you you brought up the fullbacks. I, you know, I, one of the things that struck me today is I thought Chelsea defended brilliantly just with their back four. I thought Terry mm-hmm. and Cahill were excellent. Aspilicueta was fantastic. I think who scored yeah. had him as their man of the match. What was it, 10? Let's double-check that. Yeah, 10 tackles, three interceptions, four clearances, and a blocked shot. And, I mean, Bellerin had no success on that side. Ramsey had virtually no success. Um, Ramsey completed no successful dribbles. Hector Bellerin no successful dribbles. Um, Aaron Ramsey, no key passes. Um, you know, you, you look at these kind of statistics, and I think a lot of that is down to the game as Piliqueta had. Um, the second half, it looked like Mourinho had really gotten into them at halftime and said, what on earth are you doing? This is not the plan. 
and they really shut it down. Um, You're Jay- being way too exciting and attacking. Yeah, what are you doing? <laughs> this is nearly an entertaining match of football. That's not the plan at all. Um, James, look, we can criticize Chelsea all we want, but at the end of the day, they didn't have to win today. A draw is as good as the title for them. A loss probably, arguably, as good as a title for them. But um, the the burden was on us. And I guess what I would say to you is, do you think we did enough to have any argument with the result? And uh, in addition, should the manager have changed it sooner? Or do you think he picked the right time, given that his changes were extremely aggressive? Um. Well, of course, first first of all, you do have to give credit to Chelsea, who were particularly I would, excellent. Let's, uh, not, let's not jump to that. I mean, come on. It's a little extreme. But, um, you know, they're, they're, there's no team that's more difficult to break down when they choose to play in, in the way that they did. Um, and I think it was exactly, well, first half aside, I mean, the, or certainly the second half was exactly how we anticipated Chelsea to set up. Um, what I did, you know, I think if you looked at the game as a whole, there were still signs that this is that we were a team that was able to match them throughout. And of course, we had the the best chance of as fell right at the end of the the game to Urzel and to a certain degree Danny. Um, mm-hmm. Although I imagine he didn't quite anticipate Urzel missing the ball. Um, Which was the and, one time, by the way, we managed to get our fullbacks involved down the you know overlapping, get to the byline, and be in a position for a cutback because we right. got into a lot of wasted wide positions today. Well, that's exactly what I was going to come to. I mean, the problem was we played quite a lot into Chelsea's hands. Even though we had Aaron, a player on the right, who is an, a natural and wide player, um, a lot of the play that we had and the, a lot of, a lot of the, tra- the opportunities that we tried to fashion out came from us swinging the ball in and often to only, um, only Giroud in the box against Terry and Cahill, who are particularly strong at defending those types of, um, those types of attacks. Um, I mean... It's it's easy for us though to to sit here and say you know well you know maybe a, a Jack Wilshire someone who can carry the ball and and take on a man and take the ball in centrally and 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 look to uh, find those options in the middle um, could have affect you know could have impacted the game differently especially when perhaps at a time when he'd had he'd had a few more games under his belt but then again you look at a a Mesut Ozil in theory and Aaron Ramsey on the right is someone who likes to come in field Kazola from deep um, with his ability on, on both feet. I think it's just the way that Chelsea are able to co- compact the centre of the pitch does make it that much harder for us to actually find any space in the centre. Mm-hmm. And as you said, it was only really in the 92nd minute, and it was the way in which we were able to release Monreal down the left was in between. Um, I assume it was either their, uh, the full-back and their right winger or, or the, the full-back and centre-back, um, and to find that space in, in, in between the two. Whereas any time we, we try to feed the fullbacks in or the, or the wide players from the widest part of the pitch. We were just, we were pushed out, you know, we were pushed out far too, too wide and, and the types of crosses that we were uh, able to feed into the box were, were far too suited to uh, the type of defending that Chelsea is so used to. In fact, the, one of the, uh, the better opportunities we created as well was when Koscielny managed to break um, through the flank and, they, and, and cut one back for Santi. Um, but... I don't I know think, if you know this, but Santi Cazorla is not allowed to shoot accurately from open play. Well, yeah, I, it was something... It's a ridiculous clause to have put in his contract, by the way. I mean, if you <laughs> want to be critical of Arson for anything, that would be it. Well, yeah, I mean, if there's anything we can keep um, clutching at to uh, 
um, beat Arsenal with, and I'm sure that's another one we can add to the agenda. But um, no, yeah, I I think it, it's it's a bit of both because it, it, it's difficult for one to assess, you know, how, how strong were Chelsea and how difficult would it have been for any team um, to broker them down. But I think in a game like this, Giroud found it very difficult to impose himself. I don't he he had very little of the ball. We didn't see much of the sort of the classic one touch link up play that we so regularly see from from here, Merzel and say Aaron Ramsey. Um, Sanchez did his best to try and create the things individually, but he he would often find himself running into two, three, four um, Chelsea players, and at any time he cut inside, he was um, he, he found himself sort of having to stop it in in his tracks. So. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's definitely a, a lack of incisiveness from from us. But then again, if if one of those half chances on another day when when Sanchez did find a little bit of space and he just he, he dragged it inwards instead of looking to bend it towards the back post, or if, it, if that ball from the corner had dropped to Murtasaka, to someone else other than Murtasaka, or even you know the chance that Urza had put away, you know, if if you score one of those, it obviously completely changes the context of the game. And you're talking about, um, you know, from from very minor adjustments. So you, you talk about the way in which we attacked and the way in which we created those chances against a side like Chelsea in a, in a different context and in a different manner. Yeah. Um, so I think going into a game like this, you're not going to really expect um, fashioning out that many more chances than we did. Um, and frankly, one of the ways in which we've, we've scored most you know, fairly frequently this season, one of the sort of low-key weapons that we've had has been from set pieces, and in particular with a goalie like Courtois and, and the likes of Terry Matic and Cahill, um, it's it was somewhat nullified. You know, I, I, Chelsea are going to be champions, and they're going to be champions in large part because of the way they defend, and so I don't think you can be critical of failing to score against, you know, the the team that is going to build a, t- a title on def- on defending, but... I think we probably could have created more, and, and I would argue that sticking with Ramsey on the right wing is maybe the manager just punting on the decision about who to bench, uh, Cazorla or Ramsey, because I think he has to pick one of those players to sit down and, and, and play a real winger, and, and in part because we just need to inject a little bit of pace and straight running into the side. Giroud can't run at all. Ramsey doesn't really run... Uh, you know, off the ball. Alexis Sanchez wants to dribble inside and get into the channels with the ball at his feet. We don't have anyone who does straight running. And Welbeck and, and Walcott can do that. Um, Oxley chamberlain when he's fit, can do that. So I think that's a decision he's going to have to make. And maybe he waited a little too long to, to make a switch because ultimately the, the burden was on us to score and we weren't creating the kinds of chances that you'd like to think we could. One thing that I thought was really interesting, Paul, in this match is that Towards the end of the, ga- of the game, we were really pressing to to at least try to find an opening for the winner. Um, we had taken off Coughlin. We had we had brought on you know real attacking players in Walcott, um, in Danny Welbeck, and Chelsea could have had some very very dangerous counterattacks, but systematically one after the other, Nacho Monreal, um, Santi Cazorla, Aaron Ramsey picked up yellow cards for really crucial tactical fouls mm. to stop counterattacks. I know this seems like a very minor point, and someone laughed at me on Twitter when I said, our tactical fouling has been excellent today. They said, can that be the headline to the podcast? Um, <laughs> you, know, and you could argue that the best thing you could say about this match was that we were excellent at tactical fouling. But it's, as silly a thing as it seems to, to point out, 
are you encouraged to see some of that cynicism but also intelligence and maturity in the side you know where teams of the past i can think of you know danielson watching wayne rooney run right past him to score a goal on a counterattack and doing nothing to stop it um was it good to see this arsenal team attack 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 towards the end but not just capitulate completely on the counterattack to have that that cynical edge to them to to do whatever it took to snuff out their counterattacks yeah i think it's a really good point um and i hadn't really thought about it but as you're talking uh, we were defending more than the fact that we wanted a clean sheet or we wanted it to we didn't want to get stuffed at the end or we wanted to maintain our draw it was all of that but there's also the us against Chelsea and at least not getting stuffed, not getting mm-hmm. gutted at the end, not looking like fools. And I think that was part of it. But I think it's part of it. These things are always part of a di- bigger mindset that maybe should always and probably did include the manager for good or bad. I won't mention what the bad results were this year. But, you know, when we go back to some of the naive comments I couldn't help think that he was part of that naive, even if he was saying the words. And today, despite the fact that the substitutions were very aggressive, they were very late. And I uh, I think at the end of the day that maybe Arson might admit it to himself or to anybody else, but he's probably okay with the draw. I think our team is probably okay with the draw. And I think the supporters, although we we all, every last one of us, desperately want to get one over on Chelsea, more than anything, we didn't want to lose today. And I think that came through in... But but that's a mentality that's going to have to change, right? I mean, if we want to be title contenders, Chelsea coming to the Emirates should be a game we win and that they desperately try to get something from. Now, to be fair, they did desperately try to get it, and we did towards the end try to go for it, but... You could argue, I mean, top four is done. We're going to finish in the top four. And while second is better than third and third is better than fourth, ultimately, would there have been any harm? I'll give this to you, James. Sorry, Paul, finish your thought. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. No, I think it's really important. I think there's a huge difference between fourth, third, and second. I mean, there is as a club financially, but that's another matter. In terms of mentality, in terms of the spirit you're building, it's more than the sum of the results or, you know, whether Chelsea got a goal on you or not. This, this was a really big deal today that, uh, and we'll feel this, I think, in a week or two or three as the other results come in. It's a really big deal we didn't lose today. And the tactical fouling you're talking about uh, was protecting, goes back to Arson's comments of, well, maybe we weren't going to win it, but we shouldn't have lost it. But in a much bigger way beyond today's results, there's something we've been building which we need to take into next season. And if we come second and did, and got a creditable, solid uh, draw against Chelsea, you know, you can't pretend this is the game next year. You can't say, well, we needed to beat them today if we're going to beat them next year. You can only play the game you're in. So it's frustrating, but... A loss would have been absolutely gutting beyond points and beyond, you know, this season. It would have bled into next year. I I don't disagree with you. I I don't disagree with you at all. I I think that the subtlety here, you can take steps. You know, it's not binary. It's not you're either winners or you're losers. You, You can take steps towards an ultimate goal. And maybe this was a little half step 
towards where we need to get. The thing that I was encouraged by is we didn't look physically overwhelmed by them. We yeah. we won more aerial duels than they did. We didn't look intimidated. There was no handbrake. We didn't look overawed by the occasion. I mean, you could make an yeah. argument that the Coughlin better— Coughlin versus Matic, you know, that's uh, one area where we would have— Yeah. Yep, he definitely held his own. You can make an argument that— that they had the better chances, but by and large, I would say that we stood toe to toe with them. And ultimately, when the game was open, they didn't take that lead, and they wound up being pushed back into that defensive shell as the game wore on. Um, this is arguably one of those games we would have lost one nil in seasons past. So, yep. I, I think that point is taken. Let's get through with the the actual dissection of the game itself, just with this, and I'll start with you, James. Um, Quickly, who was your man of the match, but also which player disappointed you the most today? Um, interesting question. I think Urza was probably my man of the match. Um, I thought he was particularly excellent in the first half. Um, his touches today were fantastic, and in particular in a game in which chances were few and far between, um, you know, you're not necessarily going to see and Ozil completely imposed himself from, from start to finish. But I think the statistics showed that he created more chances than any other player on the pitch with four. And I'm not sure if you noticed this, but there was a there was a time in the there was a moment in the first half where someone, I think it was Cochrane, just fizzed the like fizzed the ball at him at a thousand miles an hour and the way in which he was able to take the ball under control was just so representative of um of the class and the touch that the that, that Mesut possesses. Um so I thought Certainly, from an attacking point of view, I thought he was um, excellent, albeit in a in a tough stalemate fixture. Um, but a, a shout out to Bellerin as well, who was um, who did absolutely who did excellently. I mentioned it briefly earlier against a player of, of Hazard's ilk. He made him look um, somewhat mediocre, um, and I think there was a lot of there was certainly a spotlight on Hector given his relative inexperience and given um, the type of player he was up against. Mm -hmm. And I know this is what I tend to do in, in, in the context of Man of Match, end up sort of mentioning three players. But Yes. <laughs> the one player, that another player that I would like to um, talk about, which I didn't mention in the starting lineup, was I was delighted to see Pear um, recover from his injury. Me too. Um, I thought defensively... In the in the way he executes his tackling was excellent. He um, always does. He's a great stand-up tackler. You know, just really quickly, I tweeted before the match. I was thrilled to see Murdasacker back. This is a game where I thought he'd be really important instead of Gabrielle. And I got a lot of people asking if I was being sarcastic because Chelsea will be counterattacking. But Murdasacker is an excellent stand-up tackler, which is what you need against dribbly players like Hazard, Nosker, and that that proved the case. He did a brilliant job tackling today. And also, he's our best line-breaking passer, as Naveen often talks about in his tactics previews. So I'm glad you pointed him out because I think he's had a bit of an off-season and had some calamities, but when he's on his game, he's the one guy you trust to stay on his feet and make a tackle against a trickly, tricky, dribbly player. And can I add quickly while we're on the Murchisacker thing, uh, one of the things we've done really well this season is set pieces, attacking and defending. Yes. And Chelsea, if they were going to beat us, were probably going to beat us with either a dodgy decision, a counterattack, or set pieces. They've been pr pretty lethal as they always are with people like Terry and Ivanovic and you know Drag Drogba coming on in the second half. You know how were they going to beat us with two two banks of four? Probably off a a, a corner kick or 
you know, somebody taking a dive in midfield to earn a, a free kick and, you know, having that solidity at the back of our back four uh, with Mertesacker and the cam he brings. And we've seen us lose some of that cam when he hasn't been on the field and it's just been Koscielny and Gabriel. I think it should not be underestimated because uh, I've been pretty critical of Per too and I feel a little bit bad on that because you remember what he brings when everything's settled down. I agree and and we weren't going to lose on a dodgy decision with St. Michael in control of the game so that was good. Um, uh, all right. also, well, James, I mean, before I let you you pick every player, were you disappointed by anyone <laughs> on the team today? Um, sorry, I, because I was just I was finishing a trail oh, of thought yeah, and of you course. know me. Yeah. Um, Please, I, go on. <laughs> I, think, I think Naveen mentions it too is... Uh, Mertzeker's distribution is far and away the best of any of the defensive players we have and the way in which he breaks the lines, mm-hmm. given the, you know, the discussion of, of, of whether Coquelin is best suited to that too. So I think, um, especially in a game like this, it's, it's something that is quite integral to the way in which we um, start any of our um, plays from the back. But players that I was disappointed by, I think the term... Player. Player. Players. Uh, <laughs> to, be, to be clear, the question was to pick... One. <laughs> okay, no, I, I will choose one. Okay. I will choose one. But I think in a game like this, you know, naturally, um, it's going to be your attacking players that are um, somewhat disappointing. I think Giroud was the most disappointing player um, to watch from our side of things. Um, but that was partly down to the fact that it, it, it was a, the type of game that was particularly difficult for him to really impose himself on. Um, but needless to say, I think an attribute of his game that we often commend so highly is his regurgitation of possession, his his ability to um, win those aerial duels and, and hold up play and, and utilize that strength of his, which was somewhat nullified against Terry and Cahill. Um, and, of course, that is a, somewhat down to the qualities that those two players possess. But, but still, I, I felt going into the game that uh, Olivier could perhaps have imposed himself slightly more. Um, I, I, you know, again, is it is it a lot of that? Is it to do with just how congested it was in the centre, with the types of runs he was making? It just seemed that there were very little opportunities for, um, you know, there were a lot of there were a lot of balls that were that were swung in quite decently. There weren't that many sort of near post runs, or there weren't that many opportunities for Giroud to make the kind of near post runs that um, he often likes to make. Or he certainly wasn't inner inner. inner- interacting with or exchange, exchanging the ball with any of his other front players. I mean, the ball was either going out wide and he was just trying to battle with Terry and Cahill, which was not working, um, or he was totally just frozen out of the game altogether. What we didn't see were the little one-twos on the edge of the box that he can do so effectively, you know, the little interchanges. At one point, he got the ball actually in good shooting position and backheeled it to Bellerin, and that's about the only real clever play I can think of that he had in the game. Right, no, I completely agree, and I mean, I think one of the progressions in his game too has been his ability to know when to to come out wide slightly, allow Alexis to move in century, allow some of the wide players to move in, um, and and take up different spaces, and um, and 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 make it difficult for you know by tying onto the the fullbacks at different points, and he actually has a fantastic technique with uh, the ball at his feet and his ability to um, cross the ball and um, impose himself in other manners, and I think. We just we we didn't see we didn't see much of any of that from Giroud at all today. So that was that was a disappointment. But again, you know, you wonder how much of that is down to just how well 
Chelsea were able to nullify that threat. But you'd think, you know, you look towards a game like this where there's going to be very few chances, and in general, you you want to think that your your big man, your 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 striker up up top is the person that can make the difference. And unfortunately, you didn't you didn't really get that sense today. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. I would say that you know, for me. Um, he was sort of the most disappointing player. You could argue that Alexis was disappointing, but he did a lot of the things that he can add to a game that very few other players can just with his industry. I thought Ramsey was very disappointing, Um, but I I think we're getting to the point now, and and I don't want to sound redundant, but if I don't sound redundant, I wouldn't sound like anything at all. Um, You know, we're getting to the point now where the manager's going to have to decide whether he wants to play Ramsey in the center of midfield or sit him on the bench and play a real wide player. One thing I'll say about Francis Coughlin is we now know what to expect from him defensively, and he continues to provide it. And while he's not a great uh, possession player, we are starting to see more of the 90% pass accuracy games rather than the 70% games that we saw when he was still integrating into the side. 91.5% pass accuracy today. I don't believe he was dispossessed once. And that's what we need from him. Um, you know, if we're if we're going to be effective through midfield. So that's a good sign. Um, how about you, Paul? Who who was the player that most impressed you and who's the player that most disappointed you today? Well, I'll take your lead there. Uh, uh, given the players not mentioned so far, uh, I picked Coquelin as man of the match. Um, ju- maybe just because of the upgrade again. Maybe not the absolute man of the match, but the, but the position and the player who's made the biggest difference for us versus where we might have expected ourselves earlier in the season. Uh, I thought he was really good today. You mentioned his passing stats, but also the nature of the passes were, you know, for all Naveen's talk about him not providing a kind of a, a, a more progressive pass up field, and I know where he's coming from. I actually think that does him a little bit of a disservice, and I said that to Naveen, and I think it happened. It was clear again today. There were quite a few, you know, James talked about that fizzing ball into Ozil. I don't think his his uh, his pacing of his passes is always perfect yet. He's probably a little rushed, and he's he's overhit a few of them. But he had some quite progressive passes today. I think he'd lost the ball once or twice, um, but scrambled it back. I, I would argue where he's weakest is the the short little exchange passing exchanges yeah. further up the pitch. It's interesting I find the further up the pitch he gets towards the opposition final third, the less effective his passes become. Almost like it's playing on his mind that he's going to have yeah. to scramble back if he loses possession, and so he tries to be a little too careful. Um, and the passing yeah. looks a little more labored. Yeah, and then for my my most disappointed, it's going to be a little harsh, but. He's the guy you want in the big games, but I think he's still coming to terms with the Premier League and the physicality of it and Ivanovic. So uh, probably most disappointed in Alexis, mainly because there's nobody else that was really disappointed in. Uh, Ramsey, I was a bit disappointed in, not so much because of him. I don't think he actually played badly. I just think this was one of those games where playing him on the right wing really gives you very little. Yeah, I think the the reason you want more from Alexis on a day like today is when you're facing a very organized back four with very Mm. experienced defenders who can defend one-on-one and stay organized against, you know, a a slick passing game, it's unlikely you're going to be able to pass your way through them. It's unlikely you're going to be able to just, you know, physically beat them on set pieces. That's where you need that 
moment of individual of brilliance, yep. exactly. And you, you the Hazard moment. Yes, and, and and to be fair, Hazard didn't provide that today. Sanchez didn't either. By the way, just to clarify, my man of the match would be Mesut Ozil. Um, I remember watching the Chicago Bulls play basketball when Michael Jordan was there, and the one thing I always remember is no matter how tense the game became or how worried you felt about anything, when Michael Jordan had the ball in his hands, everything seemed to slow down and be very easy and calming. And I think Mesut Ozil has that sort of same quality. When the ball comes to him, and I'm not saying he never gets dispossessed or makes a mistake, but increasingly in this good run of form that he's been on, he just he he has an elegance about the way he moves and when he receives the ball and and I think it just sort of sets up the whole attack and and the whole team has a lot of confidence and you see them look for him and actively try to get him the ball. Um you know, it's just unfortunate today. He had two mm-hmm. bad moments. One where he did get in behind the back four, behind Chelsea's back four, the little one-two. I can't remember who he played the one-two with. It might have been Cazorla. And his first touch was a little heavy, and Terry was able to clear. And then the other moment was the moment where Monreal cut it back. He missed. Welbeck couldn't stick a leg out and poke it in. And that chance went begging, and the, and the chance to win the game went begging with it. I want to touch on two final topics. Um... And they're really the ones that are most contentious here, I think, at least on social media or just in fan opinion. I want to talk first about how Chelsea play and the reaction some of the Arsenal fans have. There's a lot of this sense that they're boring. Look at them celebrating their nil-nil. They should be embarrassed. They're celebrating like they won the Champions League after a nil-nil. Boring, boring Chelsea. I even saw some people bring up how much money they spent, which I think is a little rich when the two most expensive players on the pitch were playing for Arsenal. I think the money issue is becoming increasingly a straw man argument. I won't deny that they have the ability to outspend us at every position, but Certainly, we are not being lapped by the field the way we once were in spending two most expensive players. Again, Sanchez Nozel played for Arsenal today. Um, James, I'll start with you. Shouldn't we respect the fact that the table doesn't lie? Chelsea are going to be champions. They won playing the football they had to play to win the title. Um you know, they came to Arsenal without their star striker and had a plan and stuck to their plan and got their nil-nil. We celebrated winning the league, drawing at White Hart Lane against Spurs, very famously. Is this just pettiness and natural sore loser mentality, which, oh, by the way, we should all be sore losers. Who wants to be a sore, uh, a good loser? But or, or do you think there is something to the idea that Chelsea should should have to play a, a more um, a more entertaining style of football? Um, honestly, I think it's mostly down to pettiness and finding, you know, solace in, in having to watch that type of football, um, on our own turf and, and watching it be so successful. Um, you know, I, I, I'll be honest with you. I don't, I think if we were in Chelsea's shoes, we'd probably be celebrating much in the same way, given that today did effectively secure them the title. And that was, Clearly, Mourinho's game plan from the start, a nil-nil would have would have suited him absolutely perfectly. Um, but that being said, you know the the criticism that I think is completely just is that the two and you know the two don't have to be mutually exclusive in the sense that you don't have to com- make up a team that's um, just full of brute force players and that imposes such a dull and um, boring medium through which 
they grind out victories. Um, and it doesn't, you know, it doesn't aid the fact that they're such cunty rent boys, the, the entire setup at, at Chelsea. So, um, I don't know. I, I don't really like to speak in positive terms with regards to Chelsea, but to be fair to Mourinho at the end, of, when you look back at a, a season, especially a few years down the line, you're not really going to be remembering that much as to the kind of football that was going to be played. The most important thing is going to be who's, uh, uh, which team is is on the trophy for that year, and you know, without you know, far and away, with with still quite a few games to go, we we already know who the champions are. So there has to be credit given in that regard. But I think the ideal for any fan and the for anyone that loves football because we watch it as a for its entertainment value is that you'd much prefer to um, to follow a team that's both successful and plays a beautiful brand of football. And I think we've seen a lot of um, successful attacking sides win the Premier League over the last few years. And we cert- we've certainly seen it ourselves under Wenger a good decade ago. And, um, you know, we've seen it under Sir Alex. We've seen, we've seen strong City sides these c- last couple of seasons. And I think, you know, ultimately it's a, it's a strategy and a, and a tactic that um, can very quickly um, create very reverse like fortunes. I mean, we saw Mourinho was, was forced out of the club by Abramovich because as soon as the um, that type of football started to be slightly less successful, um, people people quickly became quite quite tired and quite sick of it. But as as long as as long as they're able to continue to regurgitate the kind of results that they are now, no uh, no one on, from a Chelsea standpoint is going to be complaining. But I think you could have far more leeway for a manager that's able to create the type of football that I think um, Wenger aspires for, and is you know and, uh, well uh, combined with a strong title challenge that pushes for the majority of the season, then one in which you're having to to grit your way through a number of very tired and very gritty and and. Um, Shrek-like or ogre-like performances, somewhat similar to the, the Pulis's. The, I'm not sure the, what the Wayne Rooney has to do with this, but okay. <laughs> um, you know, I think so. Yeah, I mean, in, in conclusion, I think ultimately, as, as long as the results go with it, there's, there's, there can really be no complaints to be had from um, those that, those that like to criticize the, uh, the brand of football. But I, like I say, I think it's a very fine line because. As as soon as those results begin to um, begin to diminish even slightly, then uh, the the type of football that's being played will will be will be criticised even more keenly. Yeah, I think to be fair, also look, draws kill a title campaign. You don't win the title drawing games. So for Chelsea to be in the position where they could revert to dull defensive football, they had to win a lot of games early in the season, and they did that. And they did that behind some, admittedly, as much as I hate to admit it, some entertaining football uh, when Cesc Fabregas was in form and Diego Costa was fit and firing and, and Eden Hazard was doing his thing. I mean, so, you know, the reason they're able to come play defensive football at the Emirates or play defensive football at home against United is because they built up that cushion and now they're simply getting over the line. Um so, you know, I, I think it's a little bit rich. I mean, Paul, I want to ask you a different question, but I'll let you just quickly have a say on this. Is there, is there any, any, 
uh, merit to the argument that Chelsea should be embarrassed celebrating a nil-nil at the Emirates um, and that they should be embarrassed of their football, or is that just pettiness? Uh, well, it's m- m- mostly just the nature of football and football supporting, but I will make a couple of points for the other side, which is, you know, it's it's not the footballer's su- supporter's fault that Mourinho is such an odious, unctuous person and has gone out of his way to be that person. Yes. So, so there's that factor. And the other factor is he did make grand claims about a new style of Chelsea, which disappeared straight after uh, the new year when he became nothing but functional and pragmatic. Now, he had his reasons, but he always has his reasons. And nobody can tell me he doesn't, that this isn't the real Jose. Um, can can this I ask is you what, a question? Let me, let me ask yeah. you a slightly different question, because this is the other thing. I think there is a, a, a tendency, because of Mourinho's CV and because the media lap him up, to assume that everything they do is by design. You know, And sometimes football teams are, are not doing things by design they're doing what the other team is imposing on them. Chelsea haven't been great in the past few weeks and months. They didn't play defensively against PSG. They had PSG imposed their will on them by outplaying them in midfield. I mean, we have seen several occasions. I don't know that Chelsea set up to play defensively against United at home. I think they did maybe a little bit, but United really imposed themselves. You saw today a Chelsea team that came out and was a little more open in the first half of this game today and certainly, you know, closed it down a little bit in the second half, but also started to get pushed back a little bit more as we started to take more control of the middle of the park. I mean, do you think it is entirely down to the fact that Chelsea have genuinely shut it down and played defensive football? Or could you make an argument that Matic has faded, uh, Fabregas has faded, um, Costa has been injured, and that in general, this Chelsea team just hasn't been able to impose themselves on teams and as a result has been forced into a more defensive posture, not necessarily by design, but simply by lack of, of effectiveness in their own attacking end? I'll give a really short answer to that, which is you could make that case, uh, but you could also make the case that Jose Mourinho is relieved to have the burden of having to attack. Absolutely. I I don't disagree uh, with that at all, Paul. uh, And what John Terry said about this first half was they didn't like that, despite the fact that they look... I mean, look what it's saying. They looked more dangerous. They had two penalty shouts. But they didn't like that. Yeah, and that, what was it? Was it Ramirez who had the chance that he hit straight, it tapped weakly? Yep. Or was it Willian who had the chance where he tapped weakly at, at Ospina when he was in Yeah, I don't goal? remember. They, uh, but it, by my kind of internal clock, they had three and a half really Ramirez. good chances. Yeah, it was Ramirez. Yeah. Thank yeah. you, James. Three James and a half really typed good chances in me. my first half. Yeah. And well, they didn't like it. We, we had more of the open play, but they had the more dangerous situations, and they didn't like that. At the 30-minute mark, I looked at the clock and thought, wow, this is going to be one of our shorter podcasts, and here we are at the hour mark, not done. So I'm going to get to the final point. Um, I want to talk about something Thierry Henry said after the game, and I don't want to go over his points about Fabregas and Ozil because I think – let me just set the backdrop for this for anyone who doesn't know. Barney Rone, who is you know, a prominent columnist, journalist uh, in, in England – wrote an article this week saying basically that Thierry Henry is a terrible pundit because he's still too close to the players and he won't give a strong opinion. So we gave strong opinions today after the game. Maybe he was hurt by that and wanted to show, look, I can really really lay into my team and, and players in general. He said some strong things about Ozil and preferring Fabregas to Ozil. 
I don't want to get to that. He did also say some things about Giroud, though, and I, I do want to get to this just really quickly. Um, and also, by the way, if you are abusing Thierry Henry or you know calling him a cunt or anything like that, have a word with yourself, for fuck's sake. I mean, you know, I get it. You don't have to love every former player, and you don't have to worship any of them, and you can take issue with their opinions, but for fuck's sake, if you're abusing Thierry Henry, you are a complete mess of a human being. Um, here, here. Yeah, I mean, arguably the greatest player in the history of our club, and if not, certainly one of the greatest players and, and certainly one of the most entertaining players in the history of the club, and a man who has nothing but love for Arsenal and has given as much to it as anyone you know in recent memory. So uh, have a word with yourself. There's a statue of him outside the stadium. Um, but he did, he did suggest that Arsenal aren't going to win things with Olivier Giroud and that they need a top, top striker. This is an issue that's near and dear to my heart because I have had a hard time warming to Giroud. I have warmed to him this year. I think he has clearly improved in virtually every aspect of his game. But I want a really quick answer here from, from each of you. Um, wink, wink, James. Uh, um, Good luck. Oh, oy come oy. on. Oy oy. Hey, 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 come on now. Let's keep it civil. Um, I, Olivier Giroud is, is an excellent player, and he gives us a lot. Look at who's won the title each year. Diego Costa for Chelsea, Kun Aguero for City, Robin Van Persie for United, Didier Drogba for Chelsea, uh, Thierry Henry for Arsenal. Um, do you Is Olivier Giroud good enough to be the main striker for a club that wants to win every tournament that it enters, every competition it's in? I'm not asking you, is he a good player? Is he a great player? Does Arsenal need someone spearheading the attack who is better, quicker, more clinical, can create more on his own than Olivier Giroud? Or do we have enough around Giroud that he compliments us? And, and again, I'm not asking you to criticize him. I'm saying, is he at the level of what we need to win a title if he's our 38-game center forward? I'll keep it brief, I promise. Oh, James, we love you. <laughs> you just have better things to say, is what we're going down to. In, in my honest opinion, I mean, the obvious answer is that I think a better striker would give us a better chance of winning a title or winning a Champions League. Um, but I that's think not he... really the question, because well, I agree. I, I, Look, a better yeah. player is always a better player. I'm saying, do we, we can we win a league without a better striker? My, my opinion is that we can win a league with Giroud. In the, um, because I think he has improved to the level whereby he could be a striker um, who could be a part of an Arsenal side that could win the league. Um, and by, by strike, I mean the starting striker for the um, the side that could go on to win it, as I think has been somewhat exemplified by the you know this like vacuum of, of, of the run of the last 10 games or so, or even coming from sort of early February or so. Mm -hmm. um, because a league title is highly dependent on consistency and for the most part is your ability to, to dispatch teams um, below you from sort of fifth down to the um, to those in the relegation zone and then obviously performing against the big sides. That being said a lot of that also comes down to the quality surrounding him I think we've seen, we've even seen a Bayern side with Mandzukic who I'd argue there isn't I, I don't watch him closely enough. I, don't, I can't imagine that there's much difference between a Mandzukic and a, 
and a Giroud when you have enough quality midfielders around him that supplements a striker. But they like knew that. they but they knew they needed better and they went out and got Lewandowski because they recognized that, that to really sure. be a force on the continent they had to have better. Right, which comes to my point is that I don't think he I I mean I, I think he's good enough to be in a squad that can win the Champions League, but I but from a Champions League standpoint, I think you would need a better striker to really mount a, a serious challenge in the Champions League. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, maybe someone who costs forty million and one pounds. I don't know. Um, what about you, Paul? Uh, can we can we live with Giroud as our main striker for the next few seasons, and in their doing, expect to be a Champions League champion or a a Premier League champion. And by the way, I recognize it's not just the striker that wins you those things, but can we win those things if he is the primary striker? I don't think we can. I don't think you would expect any other top club to try and do that. You know, it's one thing, could we scrape a Premier League title with just Giroud and our current attacking setup? Uh, Possibly. But why would you set out to hopefully just scrape it you know any other top team in europe is going to want a kun aguero or somebody like that as a striker and a giro you know giro is kind of like our jacko mm-hmm. um so you know it, so to that point then is can sanchez be the kun aguero i mean this is sanchez's first season in the league can he raise his game to aguero levels where where we're not looking at Giroud as the primary goal scorer? That's a good question. I, I, I don't see him making that. I mean, that's a major transition and a major bet, and Arson's better at that shit than I am. But, I, you know, for all the talk about Arson's genius, mm-hmm. I, think, I don't think he can visualize the future. I don't think he knew how good Thierry Henry is going to be. I think he sees potential and he wants to try it out. And he's a great. He's got a great eye for things and trial and error. Mm-hmm. But I don't think he can really see how a player will fully materialize. He's, you know, he's proved that he can also pick people who you say had no right ever being in that position. I think that's true of all managers. You can't, you can't visualize the future. You can have a sense that something's worth trying and keep trying and kind of improve and encourage. Mm-hmm. So I don't know that he can know that Sanchez is good enough to be the next Aguero or Suarez. Fair and enough. On that, on that basis... He's got to uh, upgrade the center forward. Yeah. If he can, mm-hmm. I mean, it always comes down to if he can find him. If he can't, then he's, plan B is let's see what we can get out of Sanchez in the middle. I know you've heard, probably haven't heard this before, but someone once said it's not like going to a supermarket and shopping <laughs> off the shelves. Um, so there you go. Don't but, call Thierry Henry a cunt for saying Giroud's not good enough. Call James and Paul cunts. It's so much easier. Um, and I'll t- I just want to say one quick thing on that because it struck me. There's kind of a French union. Uh, Thierry Henry does not criticize Giroud, who's also an Arsenal player, let alone a French player. He's going to be really slow to throw something out there. So I, I think you raise a good point about having been pro- provoked. Yeah, the, bar- the Barney Rone article, I think, clearly did something because some of his yeah. comments about Ozil and Fabregas, I mean, he had statistics to back it up that clearly someone had teed him up and said, hey, look, come out swinging today. You know, because, by the way, we didn't lose. Ozil wasn't outplayed by Fabregas. Ozil played Fabregas off the park today, if you ask me. 
So, I mean, I think some of this was, hey, Thierry, now's your chance to show after a big game that you're not just a sit-on-the-fence pundit. Um, yeah, but I, I, and so I think that's a great point. I think I still think the fact that he said it means he genuinely, deeply believes it because he would have been so reluctant to finger uh, Giroud. That didn't sound right. Well, yeah, I don't know. If, <laughs> I, look, I don't know that anyone would be reluctant to finger Giroud, but I'll tell you this much. I don't know. This, again, something you may not know, but Thierry Henry actually played striker um, at, at a very high level. So and was French. And was French and played for Arsenal. So, I mean, I think when you're someone who scored 228 goals for Arsenal, a striker, and was probably the best striker in the world for a, a multi-year period, three or four years there, um, obviously you're going to look at Giroud and say, he's not as good as I was, you know, and I'm the level they need. Um although we may never see the likes of him again, he says as he cries and pulls his pants down to his ankles. Um, okay. That being said, yes. very quickly. Oh, um, here comes the caveat. I, I, I wonder if, some, if, if perhaps the assessment should really be on a player like Danny Welbeck, because obviously in, in, in the structure of a squad, I mean, I think Giroud... I totally agree. We have could... one center forward. Welbeck is not... At, at, at this point, I do not think Danny Welbeck is a viable starting center forward for us. Certainly not for a side that wants to be challenging for a Premier League and a Champions League. But on top of that, I think what we've seen is in world football, a slight transition away from the world-class footballers necessarily being players that play a central position, but more so players that play from out wide, yeah. um, often from a, an introverted um, position. You know, in Aguero, you know, Hazard, Messi, Ronaldo, these are, you know, these are not players who play the typical... Robin, Ribery. Yeah. So I don't think you necessarily have to look at the central position as being the position that where you can add a, a world-class a world-class player to actually mount a, a Premier League challenge or perhaps a Champions League challenge from certainly from an attacking standpoint. I mean, you want you know it obviously then brings up the question: Does a Royce or a or a Bale type signing does that complement you know while complementing uh, the Sanchez and the Giroud, and and the Giroud that we have is that is that enough? So I, I'm not sure if the question necessarily has to be the the central the central forward position being improved when you can also add to that type of addition to your game from a from an assist and like a go- and a goals point of view with with your right with your right wing forward where I think yeah. as much as I love Alex Oxlade Chamberlain I think he's a great member of the squad. I wonder if that's really a position that we might want to look to with, with Walcott perhaps going the other way. I think that's um, fair. Yeah. I think that's fair. And I and I, I do think that you know, especially given that we're playing a non-wide player in a wide position right now shows that there's an area of the squad that we can upgrade. Um, let's do this. I, there are so many other topics we could get to, and this could just sprawl on, but I'm guessing our trip to Hull on Monday won't actually be awash with um, fertile topics for discussion, so maybe we can get to some of the larger issues there as well. Let's wrap it up. I think the challenge on a day like today, there's nothing wrong with how we played. We didn't play poorly. We wanted to win. Not beating the champions at home is not a disgrace. I think there's some signs of improvement, but ultimately, um, you know, you, you see some of the areas where the squad maybe just comes up short. Um, you know what, though? It's progress, and given given the way City looked and got lucky to get past Villa and United getting drubbed by uh, Everton, the table still looks 
pretty nice for us. And I think if we could pull it together and finish second and win the FA Cup, you can certainly brand that progress. That's something we'll debate, I'd say, at the end of the season. But for now, I want to thank the two intelligent gentlemen who you will be calling cunts on Twitter. The first is Paul. You can find him on Twitter where you can call him that very terrible four-letter word. Uh, at Poznan in my pants. Paul, as always, it was a delight. Woohoo! All right, sure. Nil nil draw, woohoo. If you want to waste <laughs> it on that, be my guest. Um uh I'm I'm gonna uh close by thanking James. You can find him at GoonerFanatic forty nine on Twitter. James, I know you are weary, but your contribution was as sharp as ever. Thank you. See you next Tuesday, Elliot. Oh, yeah, well, unless we do it after the game directly, then it'll be see you next Monday, but that would just be a kunum. And a kunum probably means something dirty in some language. Um, mm. Yes, I will see you next Monday or Tuesday as well. My name is Elliot Smith. You can block me on Twitter, at Yankee Gunner, and I would uh, certainly appreciate it if you did it. Um, for now, it's a nil-nil to the Arsenal. Uh, be one more season before Arsene Wenger can get one over on Mourinho, but... Um, we will keep our fingers crossed that that happens. Until then, I hope you all have a wonderful week. We will not be playing next weekend, so it's a chance to watch the football stress-free, root for uh, Godzilla attacks at certain stadiums, and we'll come back and talk to you after the whole game next Monday. Until then, cheers. Looking for a new podcast to listen to? Here's what we love, courtesy of ACAST Recommends. What's going on, everybody? This is Mac Wilds, one-third of the almighty guys next door. And if you're listening to this, we want you to be a neighbor. Now, I know you guys are probably thinking, like, what do these guys talk about? What is that? Well, listen, we talk about everything under the sun. We talk about everything that it means to be a young millennial man in today's society, whether it's finance, the type of condoms that you use, or how to deal with love issues, or lack of emotion. We talk about everything, and we go there, guys. We go there. We really, really have a lot of fun. So uh, if you guys would love to, we would love you to come on over, come mosey on down, you know, right past Sesame Street. We want you guys to come, come kick it with us. Come get some sugar. We are the guys next door. Peace. A-Cast, 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 A-Cast recommends. recommends.